This is the Motley Fool Money Mailbag. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the very special and very early mailbag edition. That's right, coming to you at 8am Sydney time. And thank you for those who've said they appreciate us doing it at that time. We've had to get up early for it. We've It's very, very complicated and difficult, but we've done it because we love you. Uh, when I say we, of course, I'm talking about myself. I'm Scott Phillips, and he is Andrew Page, the Managing Director of strawman.com, which... What is it again, mate? I've forgotten. Friday it's was hard, it's hard to remember. I know. I know. You got it. You got it right earlier in the week, which I, I commend know. you for. It's just, oh, it's just hard to remember. It is. It is. We're, what is it again? We're a, we're a private online investment club. That's right. That's, That's right, the one. Exactly. <laughs> you can find that at strawman.com. Andrew is the managing director and the founder. He is the boss, cocky, and chief cook and bottle washer, mate. Um, let me start actually with the socials for fun. Uh, I haven't done those. Into those on Friday, so I'll do them now. If you want your question answered, you've got comments, feedback, suggestions for us. Hit us up on the Twitter machine at Sage underscore Simeon. That's Andrew. You can follow him there or send him a message or at Strawman Invest. Hit me up. And if you're going to send us a question, probably best to direct them to me rather than Andrew. Uh, uh, at TMF Scott P. The Motley Fool is at The Motley Fool AU. Those two handles will also get me on Insta. I'll get The Motley Fool on Instagram and on Facebook at The Motley Fool Australia or uh, facebook.com slash Scott Phillips Money. Uh, if you want to send us an email, info, I-N-F-O, at fool.com.au. With that out of the way, mate, how are you this Sunday morning? Uh, I'll be honest with you. At this day, 8 a.m. Sunday morning, I'm in bed. I'm still in bed. <laughs> Podcast from bed. Loving it. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's, you you, you got to seize those kind of moments, right? <laughs> you do, mate. Sunday morning, <laughs> sacred. sacred. Oh, can I tell you, I was up at 5.30 this morning. Uh, that is between 5.30 and 6. Uh, my young bloke was on an absolutely fixed schedule. Uh Almost never after six o'clock, very rarely before 5.30, but almost entirely between those two times when I'm up in the mornings these days. Oof. You're what? Yeah, yeah, seven days a week. <laughs> Not good. Yeah, that just says you're a better parent than me as well. <laughs> My parents, the kids are doing it. Turn the TV on. <laughs> maybe, I should, maybe I should do that instead. Mate, uh, let's get Pro into tip. the mailbag. Uh, Isma, who emailed us a little while ago, um, sent us another question. Um he says, uh, thank you, Scott and Andrew, for all your advice. It's greatly appreciated by all listeners, perhaps less by financial advisors, he says. I just finished listening to your recent mailbag episode and I have a follow-up question to Anonymous who asked about investing via financial advisors and who paid about 1% of their total portfolio to the financial advisor. As the research shows that investing alone ETFs will outperform financial expert investments, I may move my investment to one of Australian and one international ETF. My question is... Would that mean I have to sell all my portfolio first and then open my two ETFs or is there a way to do it in a more effective way without losing all my gains to date? Thank you for all your advice and full on. This is one that um, I think is a really important point, mate. Something that I think when I've thought about ETFs in the past and thinking about, we talk about capital gains tax, we talked about saving for retirement. This is one of those situations where I don't think there'll ever be a solution, but if I was to sell an ASX 200 ETF, and then buy another ASX 200 ETF, even if they were effectively and completely the same investment, I'd still be up for capital gains tax. Mm. So the long-term idea, this is where I've, I've got to say, I, um, I, I'm a fan of Vanguard, as our listeners well know, uh, not for any reason, there's no dog in the fight there. Uh, but I kind of think if I'm, if I'm investing for the long-term, I don't want to be in a situation where I have to sell an ETF to buy another ETF and then have to pay tax on the way through. Mm. So I'm kind of like, if I'm buying one and I buy it for the long term, I want to know. That's the, to my mind, you know what? So I had someone who, or I've had regular people say, hey, what about listed investment companies? And my view has generally been, you know what? Actually, for ETFs, and here's why. And we've gone through that process. The one advantage that a listed investment company has is that the structure is less likely to be a problem. And you're less likely to have someone who says, it's not impossible, but you know, put the fees up on, on you know, Page Incorporated ETFs and Phillips Incorporated ETFs are cheaper, so you, you want to change them, but it becomes a lock-in. And that that's its own kind of challenge. So I, I get the issue. I'm not aware of there being any opportunity to change that, unfortunately, unless you can keep the investment but change who administers that particular investment. So I own shares in Woolies. I can transfer them between brokers. As long as I don't sell the shares, I don't have to pay any capital gains tax. Uh, but if you're divesting from a fund that your advisor's got you in to go on another one, you have to pay tax. Have I got that right? Yeah, as far as I know, that's that's true. So there's an opportunity cost there. You got to work out there what's the fees you're currently yeah, paying. Yeah, yeah. 
what's the new fees? What's the p- potential for outperformance there? How long have I got? You know, it's and then you, you got to thumb suck a lot of that. So it's it's not straightforward. Um, yeah. You you could just elect to sort of say, well, I'm just going to put a pin in this one. Yeah. And then just con- make all contributions going forward into this other one would be a, would be an option as well. That's not the words. It's it's one of those I don't think people really understand, mate. And it's it goes both ways. We've said many many times: don't make investments just based on the tax. You know, don't, don't no. try to make investments just save some money on tax. On the flip side, let's say you're in the top tax bracket because it makes my life easier. Oh, let's, let's say you're in the thirty percent tax bracket just for fun. If you're selling a hundred bucks worth of shares, you've made some money on. And let's say you made an extraordinary amount of money. Let's say you've made it's almost all profit. Your hundred bucks could be eighty-five dollars after tax, mm. which means that you've got to outperform that that pre-tax investment by a really large margin to actually make it work. Even if even if it's a better investment, sometimes you actually are better sticking with the old one, yeah. just because paying the tax again. You, if we have to pay tax, great problem to have, as you've said many many times. Mm. And you're exactly right. But if it was, uh, you know, if I'm getting ten percent on the one I own now and I get maybe twelve percent on the new one, I'd have to hold that for a decade or two mm. to actually even make back the tax before you start. So it's something that's yeah. I guess maybe it should maybe it should focus the mind on the way in more than it does, but also selling. I think we should think a bit about just to make sure we're not kind of you know, look. If you made a twenty percent gain, then the tax is a proportion of the total investment, not a big deal. Mm-hmm. So it does depend on how much you've made and all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. But it's worth thinking about. I think people spend enough time thinking about the after-tax proceeds and how much that would need to gain to pay back the value of selling and buying something else. Yep. Keep it simple. Minimize fees, Stupid. minimize transaction costs. <laughs> be consistent. Nice. And and by the and but look and and we all we all evolve, grow, um, gain more experience. So there's you know I, I there's not like I would I'm very confident that in another ten years time I'll look back at some of the stuff I'm doing now and cringe because <laughs> yeah. because that has been the case every ten years since forever. Like I look back yeah. at my my thirty five year old self and you know and God knows my twenty five year old self. You know, just think, oh my God. So I'm, I I feel as though it's the height of hubris to think that. Oh, but now I've got it all figured out. So <laughs> so you know if 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 things do change, you know while while we sort of say think about it properly before you start. Mm. There's there's if you find yourself in a hole, stop digging is a good. Yep is a good um, rule of thumb as well. And sometimes you just cop, cop a little bit of a, a cost now for the, for the greater, for the greater long-term good. If you need to do it, you need to do it. Take, take the medicine short, sharp, quick. And, and you, yeah, you might, you might be better off longer term. That is, that is the other point, right? I don't want to, I don't want to just put one side of the argument. If, if it's, if it's a, if there's a better investment out there, you got to pay tax to get to it and it's going to be better after tax and do it. Don't, don't not do it either because of the tax. It's just, yeah. you know, just try and try and try and manage that line. Um, direct answer is, Check the way the investment is held. It may be possible to transfer that investment into your own name, which may not carry capital gains tax implications. So just I, I don't know this particular circumstance as to how it's being held in what platforms or what structures. There may well be ways to do it. Um, one of those situations where particularly if it's a large amount of money, go and get personal financial advice from a, an accountant or a financial advisor and ask them what the implications would be um, rather, than, rather than assuming that we have the answers because there may well be, depending on the way it's held or the, stru- the instrument in which it's held, a way to transfer that to your name and actually carry the pre-tax cost base rather than have to pay tax on the way through. So mm. um, go slowly, ask the right questions, um, get the right advice because it could, it, it, you know, we're talking about a large amount of money to well and truly pay for the financial advice or the accountant's advice um, potentially. Uh, so just, yeah, do the, do the work first before you do anything else. Yeah. Mate, this one's from Moose who says, Hi, Scott and Andrew. I found your podcast about a month ago and now I can't stop the scram cram. And <laughs> It's getting a bit out of control, isn't it? Almost by definition, he says, I must ask a question of the podcast machine. Thank you, Moose. Moose says, my question is about Bitcoin. Just kidding, he says. Oh, oh, <laughs> like the pause? I, I know, I knew I'd have you. Can I say, listeners, just quietly, a bit of, bit of a behind the curtains. If you could see Andrew's eyes light up every time I mention Bitcoin, it would be worth this. It'd be worth it being a video podcast just for the response. I need Sorry, help. Mate, I, I need help. I, I realise... <laughs> I realize a friend of mine said you've joined. You do realize you've joined a doom cult, right? Like if you have, it's, you really it's, have. It's it's like real. It's like a, the religious fervor is insane. I'm like, oh my God, he's right. <laughs> I need help. Yes, you do. Uh, we will we will do our level best as a, as a community to help you, Andrew. We, we're here for you. <laughs> I'm you. here for you. Our listeners are here for you. Uh, all right. He says I've taken up your advice on learning how to value a company, and I've done my first discounted cash flow analysis, and I've learned a lot. Great. And more than anything, 
just how subjective and imprecise company valuation is. Mind blown, says Moose. I would now like to further my education by developing a simplified back-of-the-envelope approach to quickly assess a company's price, which you have mentioned in the podcast. You prescribe estimating a range of potential future share prices by estimating the earnings per share at a future point of time, then multiplying this value by an estimated PE. Simple enough, he says. Mm -hmm. My question is, how do you account for the discount rate? I thought to do this by discounting the current share price and then comparing this to the previous estimated future share price. Or is there another method? Apologies, says Moose. I know this is probably a boring technical question and not best suited for a podcast medium and maybe already addressed in one of the 500 episodes I haven't crammed yet. Stroll on. Brackets, combination of straw man and full on. <laughs> Thank you, Moose. Uh, really good question. You know, we haven't had this question before, so I'm glad you asked it. And it's a really, it's, it's a really important one, Ram, because we, it's very easy to sort of say, okay, in some, at some point in the future, this company's going to be earning more money. And at some point, that profit's worth more. But the discount rate, now for those who aren't following the algebra, it's just to account for the time value of money. A, a dollar is worth more to me now than in the future. If you give me a dollar in 10 years' time or a dollar now, I'll take the dollar now. But that's more, that's always the way to frame it, because it is it does it does get lost a little bit, but it's it's, yep. it's that simple. Do you want a hundred dollars now, or do you want a hundred dollars in ten years' time? Right, and what more to want? the point, if you had to wait ten years, how much more would you want? Yes, and that's the discount rate. Right, so well, hang on, I think I could earn a ten percent on the stock market. So, I, I, if you gave me a hundred dollars now and I invested it for ten years, I think that would be worth. I can't do the numbers in my head. Let's say two hundred and forty dollars um, in ten years' time. Uh, so I'd want $250 now instead of $100 now if you're going to give me the money, right? So that, that's kind of, or then, sorry, that's kind of the idea. So it's a good question, mate. I, estimated PEs are tough in themselves. I think you're more of a fan of this than I am. I don't love the estimated PE because you just, we took on Friday, you just so hard to know what it might be, right? Will is on a PE of 30 or, or the small $5 million company you talked about on a PE of, I don't know what it is, eight or 10 or something, or Adairs as we talked about yeah. on a PE of eight. Um, it's a really hard one, but it does give you a sense of, hey, how much would I think it would be worth? How much would I be prepared to go with? So first question, do you endorse the idea, Moose's idea to, to kind of use the estimated future earnings and an estimated PE and then oh, yeah. work out the difference? Oh, that's okay. how I, that's generally how I do it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then how um, do you, okay. Well, so I just want, I want to touch on the first comment that, that Moose made there is like he just, he dove in and, and he did. Yeah, yeah. It's just like, it is, it is such a, the value of a DCF, is more, I think, in the epiphanies that it leads to. And Moose had yes. exactly the right yeah. ones. Just like, oh, it turns out that if I tweak this number here, I get this massive swing in the end result. Yeah. Um, so I think it's it's more it's more the experience and the lessons that are learned and the sensitivities that it shows and, and what's important in all of your assumptions, you know, that, you know, what, what's what's more important, the level of sales growth, the margin I assume, the discount rate, you know, all of these kinds of things, they all fit together and just just build a really basic spreadsheet and play with it. Not because you're ever going to get the right answer because none of us can ever do that, but it's just, it's very educational. Um, then you can move on to the far more simple approach <laughs> for me. I, I know a lot of people, a lot, <laughs> yeah. of, a lot of friends I have just will, will swear by DCFs because they are yep, yep, yep. technically more accurate. And what I'm about to propose and what Moose has proposed is, is far more simplistic um, but I would make this comment, and you, you've actually absolutely hit on the head here, is that you, you have to make a guess as to what the PE, how, how do you do that? To which I would say two points is one was, well, you've got to make a hundred guesses over here with the DCF. If you want to avoid making guesses, uh, you're in the wrong game because valuation is all about making guesses. You have to make guesses. The trouble with the more complicated models is you just have to make lots and lots of guesses and sometimes they can all compound on themselves. So if you're out a little bit on, on 10 guesses, well, it adds up to being out a lot. So there's that. Can I, can I say, I, 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 I really struggle with that one, mate. I, oh, yeah? I, no, I, I mean, in a sense, I agree with you. Um, we've worked with people before who, who have these really complex discounted cash flow sheets with margin assumptions and gross sales assumptions and cost of doing business and selling general administrative costs. And and I, I'm not, I've just never been, I've never been completely convinced that it's possible to get those right enough. Mm. That, you know, kind of when you start compa- if you make a whole lot of mistakes, either if you're lucky, they actually cancel each other out. Or they compound each other in, in one direction or another. Mm. And I, I've said before, I'm sure on the podcast, that um, undervaluing some... The Amazons of the world or the, the Baidus in China, 
um, people got that wrong by assuming that growth would stop after five years. Yeah. You know, at year five, you, you do use kind of cash flow rates, like a 10% for five years, and after that, 2% a year. And yeah. Amazon's grown at phenomenal rates for 20 plus years. I own shares, as everyone knows. Um, and and that, 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 that extra time is kind of what's created most of the value, right? The mm. fact that it's grown at higher rates for higher periods of time. Mm. If you'd have said, okay, well, let's assume that, okay, sales growth slows and margin growth slows and then, you know, this slows and that slows. You're kind of, you know, all of a sudden you, you turn this great business into this mediocre business just by wanting to be too conservative. Or the flip side, where you say, well, maybe they can increase sales, maybe they can increase margins, and maybe, maybe this can happen, maybe that can happen. And all of a sudden you've got this business that's, you know, worth a, a 10 times the current price because you've let that all compound out. Yeah. I'm just far from, far from convinced that's a, a positive constructive way to do it it feels good because it's more detailed and so somehow you know there's this great um, behavioral finance research where you ask people what they, yeah they give them three bits of data and ask them to make a call you give them 10 bits more data they're never more accurate but there's heaps more com- confident because yeah. they feel like they've got more information to mm. make the decision yeah it, it is again i'll i'll say it though but it, uh, it is valuable in the sense of what it reveals so sometimes <laughs> when you're doing it like some I really love operating leverage, and I really love companies moving past a break-even inflection point. Yeah. So, just to just to sort of talk that through for a moment, let's say you've got a million dollars in costs, and you've got eight hundred thousand in sales. You know, so I'm yeah. losing two hundred grand each year. But if I'm able to grow my sales, and let's say it's just software, so it's a hundred percent gross margin, and my costs don't change. So I get to a million dollars in sales and I'm break even. And then I get to 1.1 million in sales. Now I've got a $100,000 profit. Mm. Then I get a 1.2 million in sales. Now I've got a $200,000 profit. So my profit just doubled. So my, my revenue went up by less than 10% and my profit just doubled. And that you, get, you get these really interesting phenomena. So I think these spreadsheets and these, these models can be helpful in trying to understand the 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 economic machine that is the business what what needs to move here what happens if costs blow out what happens if they manage to reduce uh, or increase their gross margins what happens if they manage so that i think you're right exactly i totally agree with what you're saying but i think sometimes it can be and i do do this actually you know we'll, we'll run through things at that kind of level because i want to sort of understand the dynamics it's really interesting to sort of see um for example, very, very low margin companies, how much a small difference in in operational efficiency yes. can swing the dial there. Everyone hates low margin businesses, but actually if you get a business that does that and manages to make some incremental gains, it goes from a, uh, you know, uh, a, a 10% operating margin to a 12%, like, wow, the profit just explodes at the bottom line. So yeah. It's these things that aren't intuitive, but when you've built a little bit of a basic spreadsheet, you really start to re- reveal themselves. So I think, I think that's the value of it. Like, what what point. do I need to focus on? But yeah, um, but then but then to sort of say, well, no, this is going to be the sales margin. This is going to be the SGNA cost. This is gonna, that's where it gets a little bit tricky. Um, so so but 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 onto the point here is just like, well, how do you how do you guess the PE? And this is what I said on Friday with um, Woolies uh, and Coles is that I actually I never want to be beholden to the market being in a good mood. So the way I do it is I pick a num- I have to guess, right? But I'll thumb yeah. suck a number that I feel is conservative, which means that even if if the market's just in a okay mood, like you know, it's just it, it's not it's not massively optimistic, it's not massively bearish. What is on average the market multiple for this kind of company, you know? And that's a it's a it's a useful line in the sand. Cuz that's all these things are. They're just lines in the sand. Um if I'm wrong, I just want to make sure that I'm wrong in the sense that I've been too conservative. That's a great way to be wrong. I'm not. I'm yeah. never going to go. Oh man, I was. I was expecting this company to be at a PE of twenty, and now it's at fifty. <laughs> great, great A problem to have. <laughs> Where people get in trouble when they do this exercise, they go, "Well, I, I think the PE could be at four hundred by then." You know, mm. just to be to be, exaggerate things. That that the market is doing all of the heavy lifting there, and not the business. And that is that is. If you're right, okay, great. But if you're wrong, you can be really, really, really wrong. So that's how I do it. I thumb suck it. Let's say, I, you know, how much can they grow earnings? Maybe they can grow at 10% a year for five years. Whoop, out you go. I don't know. It's a business that if it's, let's say it's still growing at that rate, geez, on average, the market will tend to pay maybe a PE of 18, maybe 20 for a business at, at low double digit rates, you know. Um, uh, there you go. Boom, thumb suck it. What does it show? But I also do this. I also say, well, let's do a pessimistic scenario. Let's say they, they only grow at 5% a year. Let's say the market's in a real funk and it's at 15 PE. 
and then just drew drew a matrix. You know, figure out figure out worst case, best guess, best case, and then it'll give you a it'll give you a spread. And uh, people love a hyper specific number, but it's <laughs> where you get really interested. I for me personally, where I get really interesting setups. It's a horrible word of phrase. I shouldn't use that. When you get really interesting opportunities is where you get companies where even at the lower end of your rather pessimistic scenarios, it still makes sense. Yeah. They come along more often than you think. And now, don't, now be, bear in mind, you'll, 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 you'll act on that and then it'll drop 20% because that's just the market messing with your brain and that's how the, op- <laughs> that's how the universe <laughs> operates if you're me. But, but if you're half right, I mean, it's just it's a it's a thing of beauty, and you've got the pace, patience to realize to to see that re, be realized. It's it's a great thing. So I, I love it for its simplicity, and and I account for the uncertainty by just being pretty conservative. There's a big margin of safety in the assumptions I'm making. I like that, mate. I like that. I. It's a difficult one, I think, in the sense that, and it goes both ways, right? I, I think my 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 broad thought is. That's all true, but you also can miss opportunities by being too conservative. That's, oh, that's, I've done that a if lot. You, if you discount yes. back and discount yeah. back and discount, let, let me let's assume profits not going to be quite that high. Let's use a higher discount rate. Let's use this, use that. Let's and it's like, well, okay, now I'm going to pay two dollars for a five dollar share, and when it goes to twenty five dollars, like, oh man, I really should have just paid up because it was obviously quality. Mm. So, and, then, and you've said millions of times, this is why it's difficult, but it's also why it's rewarding. If you can get that roughly right, then you and I think that's the other thing: it's being roughly right. Yeah, um, we, that, and that's why I probably am a little bit. I don't try and be too precise. I think you're right about looking at the P&L and seeing what can change. Mm. Things like operating leverage are wonderful things, which is what you were talking about with businesses going from loss to profit or a little bit of <sighs> so a little good. bit of sales growth in a, in a low margin business can just be rocket fuel. Yeah. Um, those things are really worth understanding. I, I I'm actually completely with you. And look look at Woolies, right? Woolies margin goes from four percent to six percent. Oh, they double their profits. <laughs> it's like you know, it doesn't it, it, sound like much, right? Like it, you okay, know, four well, yeah. to six. Yeah. I mean, you know, six is better, yeah, but two yeah, yeah. percent better, right? Know? Massive. So anyway, it's worth 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 thinking about those things. Can I hey, um, mate, just uh, just okay. touch on the uh, Moose's other question there? Oh, of, sorry, of, yes. Um, yes. How do you choose a discount rate? Yeah. So this is where like books of you know textbooks have been written on this. <laughs> you know, so you yeah. take the risk free rate and you you add a risk premium. You know, some all this kind of stuff. I throw that out the window personally. <laughs> I just yep. think the way I the way I look at it is what return do I want? So just doing doing that doing that calculus again. Here's a PE. Here's an EPS. Both thumb sucked. Both out five years. Gives me a dollar, say. Um, the, that the, here's the thing to understand: if you're right, that is exactly what the price will be. I mean, if you guess the PE and you guess the earnings per share, by definition, you've guessed the price. So that's what the price will be. So if it's a dollar, and in, I just just to go with the thought exercise, let's say I know that something is going to be worth a dollar in in five years' time. Well, then the only question is, it's not so much about risk-free rate returns, and I, a lot of more technical people will be screaming at me right now, but I frame, it in, <laughs> I frame it in the way of, well, what return do I want? You know, and I generally go with 10% as a, as a, as a rule. Maybe Sometimes I'll go 15% if I feel it's like a, a little, um, it's a riskier, a little bit spicier kind of play. And again, that's just another, another way of introducing a margin of safety. Hmm. But it means that if, I can't do the maths in my head, let me do it very quickly here. If I start with a dollar and I'm going to divide it by 1.1, 1, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5 times, that means if I pay 62 cents and I wait for five years and I sell it for a dollar, I've made 10% per year. So I frame it on what return do I want. Now, yes, that probably will be influenced by the fact if, if interest rates were at 10%, well, probably I should use a higher discount rate because why am I why am I taking the risk of investing in equities when I can just pop it in a term deposit and get ten percent? So I yes, I, I'm not an idiot. I get it. I know that those things matter, but I think the way to frame it for yourself, hmm. bearing those opportunity costs in mind, is what return do I want? That's the discount rate I use. Can I ask you a question on that? I agree hmm. with you, and I do the same thing. But let me, for the sake of the conversation. Why wouldn't you choose twenty five percent? Because who would want a lower rate? Oh, you great question! Yeah. So I know I, you know I, the answer. I, I want a, I want a forty yeah. percent return. I'm going to put that in. Yeah, I know you know the answer. That and I it's do. a great question. So <laughs> let's let's do that again because I've got my calculator out. I want a twenty five. I know it's going to be worth a dollar in five years' time, and yep. I want a twenty five percent return. So yep. I take my one dollar. I'm going to divide that by one point two five. I'm going to go one, two, three, four, five. That means I have to pay thirty two point seven six eight cents. And if I pay thirty-two point seven six eight cents, and I wait five years, and my assumptions are correct, I'm going to get a twenty-five percent annual return, compound return. Trouble is, what if the market doesn't offer me that? 
So I'm sitting here with my pile of cash each year waiting for this company to drop to 32 cents. Now, if it does, happy days. That's fantastic. Uh, if it doesn't, I just sit here in cash, in cash, in cash, and where the market continues to go up and up and up, which it tends to do <laughs> on average over the longer term. So the, the opportunity cost there is one of you'll never get in. You know, better, better to get a 10% return that is, that is realistically achievable versus a 40% return that you'll just you'll never get. Now and again, you will. Now and again, and these are, these are the beauty of bear markets. You know, every cloud has a silver lining. When, 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 when there's blood on the street and everyone is just dumping things, you know, recklessly without, without thought, everyone's just terrified and the lemmings are running off the cliff. Actually, then you do get those opportunities. <laughs> and that's, that's where you really do need to back up the truck. Uh, again, just being in mind that you'll do that and then it'll continue to drop 20% and then it'll stay there for like, you know, two years. That's just, just how it goes. But if you're right, that's the returns that you'll get, absolutely. Yeah, so it's just important. When you say the return you want, it's kind of a return you can think you can reasonably expect, which is high enough to take the risk, but yep. not so high as to rule out anything. You know, getting, a, getting, getting an actual 10% rather than waiting for a hypothetical 25% that never arrives is, is crazy behavior. So we say the return you want, is kind of a, it's kind of a reasonable return that you can get um, in a way that makes you know, logical sense. High enough that it's worth taking the risk, not so high as it rules you out of investing in any of those things. If you could get 40%, of course, you would take it, but you often can't. So choosing a, a level which is high enough to offset the risk, but low enough to actually mean you can invest and make that return, uh, an actual 10 is better than a, than a possible but never achievable 25. We have to do, we, we, I mean, a lot of people in our position, we love to sort of sit up in our ivory towers and go, oh, oh, oh the market is so irrational and stupid. You know, <laughs> we're so level-headed and, you know, aren't we clever? Yeah. We just we just buy when, it, you know, be greedy when everyone's fearful and fearful when everyone's greedy. It's obviously not as simple as that. Yeah. And the market isn't as dumb as that. I think it's very reckless to assume that the market is is this That's stupid thing that completely ignores reality. It's the old joke of two economists walking down the street. One sees a $100 note on the ground and the other one says, don't bother with it. If it was really there, someone would have picked it up by now. That's the effect. <laughs> That's the efficient market hypothesis, right? So, yeah, yeah. And, and here's the thing. It's actually, the market is pretty efficient most of the time. Mm -hmm. so, you've, you, so, so it is not, it, it is going to be very rare to get those opportunities. So you, you, kind of, you kind of have to, you have to be realistic. Did you see a really great tweet from Morgan Housel the other day? And he said, one, every great investment was once mocked by the crowd. <laughs> Two, the crowd is usually right. <laughs> and I just thought that is so true. Yeah. Yeah. They they feel they feel um, yeah. uh, the, 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 they're not mutually consistent, but they are. And that 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 is every great investment looked stupid at one point in time. Look at Tesla. Look at Amazon. Look at I mean they just look stupidly priced. You know it's never it's it's never going to work out. Um, but they are the exceptions to the rule. You know the crowd is usually pretty good pretty good at these these kinds of things it's it's the old if you've heard of it the jelly bean contest where if you put the jar of jelly beans on a table and you and you say you know whoever guesses close closest is going to yes. get the jelly beans well everyone's guess is like miles out but here's the thing that'll blow your mind the average is always really accurate <laughs> uh, right. really accurate yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Google crowds, it. right? Google it. It's yeah. a fascinating, yeah. fascinating uh, insight. There's other ones they do on, on ag shows where you guess the weight mm -hmm. of the bull, or there's a, there's a few varieties of it. But that's the market. That that is the market. There's everyone's looking at BHP, thinking I someone thinks it's worth this, someone thinks it's worth that. <laughs> on average, it tends to tends to be reasonably uh, um, uh, accurate. That's yeah. fascinating. Yeah. Love it, it. Love it. Motley Fool Money. For more, subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. Mate, um, let's get a question. A couple of questions from Colin, actually. Colin's been a, a prolific question asker, uh, and so I've picked up a few of these at once. So let's go through maybe some, some quick fire uh, <coughs> some answers for Colin. Uh, I'm a little bit under the weather, by the way, so I'm coughing and sniffling. My apologies in advance. Colin says, am I correct in thinking that if you're going to buy an income stock, you are slightly better off waiting until it goes ex-dividend than before, all else being equal, due to the tax on the dividend payment to you? What? No. So I think he's right. What? But you because wanted the franking credits aren't included. So I know the theory, right? In the US, where there's no franking credits. Oh, oh, sorry. sorry so, sorry, so here's sorry. here's the story, right? So one dollar stock pays a ten cent dividend. Mm -hmm. On ex dividend day, 
the shares should fall from a dollar to ninety cents yep. because the ten cents has left the business and is now in your hands. Uh-huh. So instead of buying a company for a dollar, which includes ten cents of cash, you buy it for ninety cents and you get the ten cents in cash. So all else being equal, those things are the same thing. So the answer would normally be there's no difference at all. Except Colin's point, I think, is, but I'm also getting forty odd four cents, sorry, of franking credits. So it's actually worth more to me to get the dividend than to miss out on the dividend. Or are you better buying at a cheaper price because then you pay lower capital gains tax? Difficult question. So where where <laughs> where where I where I uh, yeah okay get it. But but here's the thing: if if you're buying a an income investment, it's because you want a, an income stream, right? Yes. If you're uh, trading, he might be just saying a stock that pays a good dividend. To be fair, he might not be saying for the income stream per okay, se. Okay. Okay. He might say for, let's let's pick a let's pick a bank that pays five and a half percent. When uh-huh. is there is it better to buy that before or after the dividends paid? If you're buying it to be tricky around these kinds of things, then you're not investing and you're not looking for an income <laughs> stream. You are trading. You are speculating on what the market will do and how that which which is fine if that's your bag. It's actually not fine. Don't do it. It's crazy. Um, <laughs> uh, just personal. I don't know. <laughs> just don't. Yeah. Don't do it. Um, uh, but it, otherwise, you're buying it because you want the income stream. Oh yeah, I want to put some money into this thing, and over the subsequent years, many years, I want to get a lovely tax-effective yep. income stream. Now, if you do that, let's say do it for ten years or so. You know, really, if, whether you bought before or after the when you when yeah. everything settles and you work it all out, it makes bucker difference like you're you are being too clever by half and you're way overthinking it i know i know that's not what the the, the caller the listener is is saying in this instance but mm-hmm. but just remember back first principles here am i trading around some kind of inefficiency in the market to gain a fall so, and even if you do get a gain it's going to be a very fractional minor gain it's not going to be the difference between living on the street and driving a lamborghini right it's not it's just not even anywhere near that i might do slightly better under some circumstances under one particular circumstance than another but if i am buying an income stream then you know it, it, it it's it's really not going to make a difference over over the long term or even the medium term yeah i think i think you're right uh, colin the offsetting factors are that you might get the franking credits if you buy it earlier. So that's positive. If you wait, ironically, you're actually in a lower cost base, but that means you're going to pay more tax when you actually sell shares. Mm. So it, it does kind of go both ways. Um, I, I'm with Andrew. I could, we could pro- there, probably is a, there probably is a technically correct answer, I would assume, if we did the numbers, mate. It makes sense to me if we just thought, okay, well, what if we held it for this long, got this sort of return, if the, if the tax was this and whatever, whatever. There's probably, there probably is, Colin, a, a, a slightly better technical solution. One or the other is going to be better. Uh, I'm with Andrew. I wouldn't. I wouldn't bother. Even then, though. Even then, we there's still the uncertainty of the future. So you can say, well, I've I've modelled it all out, and under this scenario, this one. Yeah. Gives, and again, it's going to be a minor difference. I get a half a percent compound per annum difference on on this way. But then you do that, thinking, ah, I've thought this through. I've modelled it all out. You you buy the shares, of, you know, whether it's before or after, and then the company comes out and says we're broke. <laughs> Or we've got to take, like, or something just boom. You know, this is what every day happens on the market. Yeah. So it's kind of like the best. Everyone's got a plan to get punched in the face, right? As Mike Tyson famously said. Um, so yeah, I, I just, I don't. Uh, there are so many of, of the of the two thousand things that you could possibly look at when when evaluating an investment. Mm-hmm. This is so far down towards the bottom as as to just you know that you, you you're missing the far far more influential bigger things. It's an interesting I question. Mean, I'm not, I don't want to be critical. Yeah. It's, it's a fascinating yeah, thing yeah. to think through, but you know, practically, you don't need to worry about it. I think I think that's right. I mean, I, I, you know, to, to Colin's point, it may be the case you've done a lot of work. You decide you want to buy these shares. It's going to be a great business. Mm. It's going to be dividend tomorrow. Do I buy it today or tomorrow? I, I can imagine that being the final decision. Of, yeah, you know, gotcha. it doesn't matter. Yeah. And I guess that yeah. makes some sense. Yeah. Um, second question he asks is: Hi Scott, thanks again for the podcast. I've been a listener since Ram was co-host the first time, and I've got a lot out of it. A question: My brother and I are helping my mum manage her SMSF. Now, I will say this point, Colin, you know, the more detail we get, the less we can help you. So uh, we can only do certain things around uh, around personal advice. We can't give personal advice at all. Um, after years of trying, we finally convinced her earlier this year to sell the investment property that comprised more than half of the SMSF, which she did very well on, he says, but had to be liquidated at some point. So now have more than a million dollars of her cash in the SMSF that now totals nearly $1.6 million. We've been having lots of discussions about how to best invest the large cash balance in her super. And a few questions have come up that I thought I, that I would love your thoughts on. So here we go. One, is there an advantage or disadvantage to buying an ETF that is mostly outside Australia when the AUD is meaningfully higher or lower than the long-term average? I.e., 
Would there have been an advantage in buying such an ETF when the dollar was at parity a few years ago and vice versa when the dollar was at 50 cents during the COVID crash? Or is the currency irrelevant to your returns on such an ETF? This is an easy one, Colin. Uh, it's not irrelevant at all. Uh, because the dollar value, you're exchanging fewer Australian dollars for the same US asset. So if it's a US listed ETF, uh, the, the, the fair value of that ETF is measured in Australian dollars, but using the US dollar assets. So as that change, it absolutely does change, yes. Um, and the higher the dollar, the better. I would not put currency at the forefront. Um, probably more important than, than the tax of the ex-dividend day, uh, to your last question. Uh, but yes, it, I have personally, when the dollar, when the dollar was $1.10, I sent as much money to the US as I could. I'd happily bring it back on the other way when the dollar crashes. I don't imagine ever selling Berkshire Hathaway, but if I do, it'll be when the dollar's at 48 cents. If we have some sort of weird thing that's like, okay, I just have to do it. I will say, mate, the challenge with this is, generally speaking, historically, from my own experience, when the dollar is low, the share market tends to be low at the same time. So when the dollar crashed during the COVID crash, so did the US stock market. So they kind of, they actually end up, I won't say exactly cancel each other out because I didn't do the maths, but they kind of cancel each other out, right? When the stock market falls 35%, the dollar falls 35%, well, there's no benefit. So it matters if you've got cash on the sidelines. Uh, that's, a, that's a time to do that sort of stuff. But it really is hard. It, it, it's, it's, it's almost not fair. It's almost like, you know, someone's out to get us. Um, you would absolutely take advantage of that if you could. My experience has been, you just simply, there's not enough opportunity to take advantage of because the, the, the US market and the, US dollar tend to move in the same direction, which if you're an Australian investor means there is no free lunch, unfortunately, on that one. Mm. Anything to add on that, mate? Yeah, I mean, you just, I mean, y your mum's got her nest egg there. You're trying to do the best that you can. Do you want to fold currency speculation into all the other things that you need to, <laughs> you yeah. know? And it's, it's not, it's like, as you say, it's, is it important? Yeah, it's absolutely important. Yeah. But I mean, yeah. I mean, you think you think predicting the share market is hard. Gosh, currencies, they're just so, so, so diabolically difficult. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think the the decision to go offshore is more because I want exposure to those those some of those wonderful companies yeah. that are offshore. Uh, you tend to find the good thing about a company is that, in theory, its earnings can kind of grow forever, right? Mm. But um, yes, exactly. But but currencies tend there's ex, there's, there's exceptions um, with hyperinflation and you know ask the Venezuelans or whatever. But you know the there they, they with the Aussie dollar versus the US dollar for example, it tends to be what you call mean reverting. So you can play that mean reversion if you want, and as you said, it may be at extremes. It's something that folds into it. But but if you're looking for something over the next five or ten years, even if it does go from where are we at the moment about seventy cents to sixty cents. Over that time, the, the far more yeah. dominant driver of your returns is going to be what the business's earnings did over that time. Absolutely. Yeah, they, they don't have to revert back to some average. They, they can just keep going up and up and up. Yep. Um, so, I yeah. think you can be absolutely opportunistic about choosing to do things when the current... If, if, you get, if you get a free kick on the currency, then take it. You know, at, at $1.10, I think you're mad to not send as much money to the US as you can because it's, it's, it's on the extremes of that. Uh, even if it doesn't go down... You got a good price. You know your point before about the you know the downside risk is relatively minimal. The upside risk is massive. Mm. Maybe maybe I, maybe I don't get the upside, but there's not a lot of downside. Um, and the same the other way around. I, I said I would, I would happily own Berkshire forever, but if we get a stupid exchange rate, it's like oh, okay, I kind of have to bring it back because it's worth much more to me now than than it would have been otherwise. Yeah. Um, otherwise, as you say, I'd rather just hold it for years and let Uncle Warren and, and the team do the compounding for us. Yeah. Um, Colin, second question. I'm grappling with wanting her to have a large proportion of her portfolio outside Australia for diversification and total return reasons versus the tax advantages of franking credits on an income stream of Australian stocks. Any thoughts? You go first. Yeah, well, for, for, for someone who's retired and, and looking to live off it, it's hard to go past those lovely Aussie fully franked dividends, isn't it? Yeah. It's really hard. Now, you'll you'll take, again, what matters, and I know you say this all the time, rightly so, is what matters is your after-tax return. So I, if, if it means that I pay a, a bunch of tax, but I get an let me reframe that. If I get some really great capital gains and I have to pay a bunch of tax on that, but it's still more, worth more than what I would get if I got some lower fully franked dividend returns in Australia, well, take take the former, right? Yeah, I know you've paid more tax, but you've still got more in your pocket at the end of the day. So that, that absolutely matters. But um, usually getting those kinds of big capital gains will involve taking a lot more risk, which if you're 32, great. If, if you're 73, I don't know. Do you want to do that kind of stuff on on everything you've got to live off for the rest of your days? Um, so I, I, I would I would you know, again we're not giving advice, but I personally at that stage of life would 
would bias myself towards the Aussie fully franked dividends. But here's the other thing, because uh, Colin gave us a bit, bit of extra information. There's $1.6 million there. That's a lot of money. That's a hell of a lot of money, right? So you can probably put a million dollars in something that's going to give you those lovely fully frank dividends and then maybe be a little, a little go further up the risk curve, as, as the pundits like to say, with, <laughs> with the other one because you can ride out the volatility because even if you're getting, what, what 3.5% fully frank, call that 5% on a, on a, on a million dollars, there's like 50 grand, which you're probably not paying any tax on anyway, mm, given stage yeah, of yeah. life. And then and if you own your own home, which it sounds like she does, it's like, you know, yeah. that's a thousand bucks a week, right? Yeah. You know, yeah. you, 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 are, you, are, you are not eating cat food in, in shivering in the cold at night with a candle. Um, pretty good situation to be in. Yeah, I, uh, I agree with you. I, I think it comes down to, Colin, we can't give you personal advice or your mother. It comes down to what you're looking for, as Andrew's already said. Um, seems reasonably obvious to me that at this point you want to be prioritizing income stream uh, and you want to probably have some sort of regularity of income stream, some sort of dependability, and yeah, frankly, the tax advantages of that. Um, we have a service, again, I've mentioned this before, and I don't do it for the sake of marketing it, don't care if people join or not, um, everlasting income. And the entire idea of that is to turn a, a cash pot into a, a regular income stream, including um, franking credits where appropriate, not entirely, by the way, but, but where appropriate. Um, and that's because in retirement, total return, yeah, it's important, but the volatility, it kind of depends on how you're managing it. For most people in retirement, they don't want to be trying to maximize their total return for the purposes of you know getting extra one and a half percentage points in a given year, but having much, much, much more volatility. Most people are like, just if I can have my $1,000 a week to your point, Ram, uh, that's that's kind of what I want. And so there's, there's something to just simply, yeah, you said last week, I think, mate, you know, uh, I don't remember exactly what you said, but effectively, you know, it's the, life is more about more than money. And so, you know, while, while you and I are largely in a part of our lives where we're trying to maximize long-term returns, at some point, my life is going to go from that to actually having a reliable income stream. And, and at that point, you know, am I going to put leave some gains on the table? I may not because I'm a different person. Right? I'm, I'm me. We invest for a quid. I'm super used to volatility. If it, well, I will give you an exact example. Um, my mother-in-law helping her manage her portfolio. That's how Everlasting Income was born. Uh, I actually don't care nor does she about the total return of her portfolio. She just wants to know she's going to get a regular income stream. And so that's exactly how we've set up the portfolio. So can't tell you what to do, um, but my sense is that's a, a, a good starting point. Now here's Colin's third one. While researching Vanguard passive index ETF options for her, I looked into the details of the Vanguard Global ETF and the Vanguard US Total Market ETF more than I ever have before. The long-term returns are unreal. The 10-year returns are 290% and 500% respectively, and they pay a small dividend along the way. It's made me question whether active investing is worth the time and effort for me in particular, he says, when those returns have been on offer over the recent long term. He says in brackets, past performance, not indicative of future performance, of course. Um, it's a really good question, mate. Mm, this is, we, we've kind is. of had a different version of this for, for, for a long time, but it does, I asked you partly, you know, tongue in cheek, and I'll put you on the spot, saying, you know, how many, how many people should be just ETFing and how many people should be actively investing and how many people would we say are that shouldn't be? Um, and we both come up with more than half of people who are actively picking stocks probably should just be ETFing. Um, any additional thoughts on that, given Colin's question? Yeah, no, no. I, I, I just think it's it's just too easy mm. to to take this passive approach and get a really attractive return. Is it the best return of all possible returns? No, not even close. You do yeah. much better by piling all of your money on, you know, small cap company X and watching it go up 20X over the next five years, obviously. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Right? So, um, but then there's the question of how likely is that? You know, it, yeah. it, there is something in, in, in just... This is the this is the the dichotomy here. It's sort of like, well, you go with a passive index and I'm, I'm only going to get the average return. Hmm. Yeah, but the average return is pretty good. And yes. it's guaranteed. <laughs> well, I'm guaranteed you, you the, the average. average. The, the actual yeah. return isn't guaranteed, Sorry. but the average is guaranteed. Sorry, I'm guaranteed the average and history would suggest that the average is probably going to be pretty decent. Yes. And even if you were to say that, look, we've, we're going into a different period for a whole bunch of reasons and maybe you know this 10 percent long-term average isn't realistic and it's only five or six percent it's still pretty good yeah. it's pretty good yeah. for something yeah. that you don't have to think about right 
Now you contrast that with the person who's got 12 different screens in front of them in a supercomputer and spends <laughs> 16 hours a day staring at things and reading the financial review cover Going to cover and doing place. all yeah, of that, yeah. you know, and then scrapes out a one or 2% alpha, as they call it, outperformance. Mm. You, you, you kind of got to contrast that. So I've, mm. I've long said that, I mean, I well, I, 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 I'm a stock picker. I pick shares directly. That's yeah. what all our members on Strawman do. But it's, it's, it's got to for me. I think it's got to be something that you actually find inherent joy in, and that's going to sound like what what is wrong with you for a lot of people who's like <laughs> seriously. But if, if you like to nerd out on that stuff, and I do, yep. and, and our members do, then yep. then I, I think that's it's it's less like work, right? Um, and and it can be very very satisfying to sort of get a bit of outperformance. But you, but it is work. It is work. Mm -hmm. And and if if it's not if it's well, it's effort. And if it's not the kind if it's the kind of effort that's going to cause you a bunch of stress. And you're really not going to enjoy it. And your best case scenario is a few points of outperformance. Like, is it really worth it? You know, life is too short. You're hit by a bus tomorrow, right? Like, yep. yeah. Do something it, you love. It, do, do something you love. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. But if you do yep. love it, great. <laughs> it's really, going to be really great. It's going to be really great. Nice. Hey, question from Trev who says, Hey, Scott, a quick query for the podcast. I hold BHP shares and I've now received Woodside shares after the merger deal. If I wish to sell the Woodside shares, do I still need to hold them for a year to avoid capital gains tax? That's from Trev. Uh, I actually don't know much about the deal, but I'd say yes, you would, right? I would take a different view to you, Andrew, which is why my answer is going to be get financial advice. <laughs> <laughs> um, generally speaking, because the assets were held, it's, it's like a share split or a, or a whatever. You've, you've held the original assets for longer than a year. Uh, the fact they're now in two parts shouldn't make that much difference. The cost base would have would should be spread across both the old and the new assets. If you if you held so Tabcorp for example, they spun no, off the luxury yeah. company. Yeah, yeah. Um, your your original sense. cost base goes back to the purchase, not to the spin off date. Um, so I would I would speculate. I would have been reasonably no, sure. You're right. You're um, right. That that you won't have to. You have to hold. It has to be a year from when you bought the BHP shares, but not the Woodside Woodside shares specifically. But Trev. Um, we're not tax advisors. We're not tax accountants. We are certainly not representatives of the ATO. And please don't act on that thought. That is my best guess. Um, I'm reasonably sure it should be right. But mate, please don't act on that. Go and go and get some advice from someone who knows. Uh, the company may have it covered that in the spin-off demerger documentation. So that's probably the first place I'd go uh, to find out. Uh, otherwise, again, uh, if, if, it's, if it's material, um, personal financial advice, probably useful. Mm. Sounds right what you're saying, mate. I, I, I generally think that's how I start my life, mate. I, I generally sound right what I say and I go from there. No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> it's one of, those, one of those things, man. Hey, um, the question that we've got from uh, Ben. Good morning, Scott and Rampage. Love your content and look forward to your podcast each week. And for the record, the only podcast permanently locked in first gear with a redundant 30-second skip button. Does that mean he doesn't skip us and he likes what we do? I'm not sure what that means. <laughs> I'm a big fan What's of the it? skip button when I'm listening to podcasts. <laughs> we don't have we don't have any. Oh, do we? I don't think we've got any direct sponsor stuff at the start. Do we? Don't don't skip don't skip the sponsors. Okay, we we, we love our, we love our advertisers. <laughs> My question is in relation to Fortescue and your recent acquisition of shares. I've had a long running discussion and differing views with a close office colleague in regards to the future of Fortescue to a point where earlier in the year I was selling at the same time he was buying. We're both relatively new investors and agree on most things. However, I would be interested in your thoughts regarding your recent purchase as well as Rams in regards to the opportunity cost. Some thoughts either way, he says. Firstly, one of the best run businesses in Australia with a long track record of success, a reliable dividend paying stock with good financials, and in general terms, a well-known Australian success story. However, says Ben, China's building industry faltering, including an oversupply due to sustained internal community investment, a reducing national population as well as a reduction of population moving from the countryside to the cities, the relationship between China and Australia being relatively poor and showing little sign of improvement, China developing better quality and cheaper sources of iron ore from Africa, and Fortescue's primary reliance on iron ore. Am I being overly bearish on the future of Fortescue in global markets, or should I place more emphasis on what a well-run company can achieve? Please enlighten me, says Ben, as I'm currently feeling somewhat un-Australian by not being invested in Fortescue. <laughs> Full on from Ben. Mm. Do you want to go first or you want to go first? You go first. All right. Uh, ben, firstly, don't be un-Australian, mate. The, the company doesn't care or know what you own. 
Uh, there is no benefit to the company of you owning the shares, no benefit to Australia of you owning the shares. Someone owns them. Uh, it, you know, there's, there's, room for, there's room for a bit of emotion and, and joy and enjoyment in, in investing, but I wouldn't buy something just to feel Australian. When I was a kid, Ram, I always... I, this is this is so this is so dorky on so many different levels. Uh, my old man used to drink Tui's beer, and I kind of yes, one of those Australian brands, right? And I had these fantasies of buying Tui's back from Lion Nathan because Lion Nathan was a Japanese company who owned who owned Tui's at the time. I thought it'd be great to have Tui's back in Australia. I'm gonna get, I'm gonna get rich enough, I'm gonna buy back Tui's to make it Australian. Clearly not gonna happen. But that was my that was my childhood uh, one of my childhood plans. So that, take that for what you will, Ben. Um, okay. Uh, I don't think you're wrong about the pros and cons, mate. I think you've, you've probably got the cons and pros reasonably reasonably right. I, I think there's a few things. Um, I bought shares for a couple of reasons. One, at the time the iron ore price was low and I thought there was a probability that the price would be higher over time. And if that was true, profits would go up and so there's some money available on offer. I don't intend to hold this one forever necessarily. I'd love to if it continues to do spectacular things and be priced cheaply, then I'd, I'd love to hold it forever. But uh, I may not hold it forever. I don't expect it to be a super long-term holding. This was one of those, hey, it just looks too cheap to ignore situations. I like Twiggy's management style. I like his approach. Smart, well-connected guy who's done a really great job. I actually like the investments in the Fortescue Future Industries business. I don't see those as... as um, purely value creative necessarily, but I think they're kind of free options because the rest of the business look pretty cheap. But if he can do things like get hydrogen sorted or something else, then there's meaningful upside. If he can't, then there's not a lot of downside because I wasn't paying much for it. I was buying an iron ore miner that had this free option in the, in the future industries business. Uh, the concerns about the macro situation are absolutely legitimate, 100% legitimate. I think what's challenging for me in general, I get this wrong by the way as much as anybody else does, is the future prospects uh, it's very easy to, to to look at the future and say what if this happens what if that happens we, we've joked before around people have been forecasting into the chinese building industry since what <laughs> 2011 at the very least yeah right now sometimes these black swan things do happen you know someone who predicted COVID in 2019 was probably pretty right uh it, it, it you know if someone had said to me in 2018 well there might be a pandemic in the next five years like oh, of course there could be anything's possible it's not likely is it and it would have been 100 wrong so you got to be mindful of that i would say ben i think you're Bear case is legitimate. I don't think, don't know how likely it is. I don't think China goes into reverse anytime soon. I don't see them, their economy faltering anytime soon over the long term. So again, I don't mean it can't have ebbs and flows. I think the long-term future of Chinese economic growth is pretty bright. Uh, the cheaper iron ore in Africa is a real potential issue for sure. Uh, don't have a strong view on how likely it is, how quickly that comes to bear or, or not. But Fortescue is one of the cheapest, lowest cost iron ore producers in the world. I'd be very surprised if the iron ore is cheaper out of Africa. I could be wrong. Uh, the labor cost will be lower, but it's been said before that iron ore mines are logistics companies with an iron ore, with a mine at the end. Because it's about the cost of getting out of the ground, getting an iron ore boat and getting it to the destination. Uh, the Pilbara is just spectacularly good, excuse me, for all of those things. It's super, uh, super available on the surface or near the surface, uh, super close to ports. Uh, maybe it's a maybe it's a possibility. Uh, maybe it's not. Um, the Chinese-Australian relationship, I'm not worried about at all because iron ore is a global commodity. Frankly, if China could have screwed us on iron ore, they would have already. Uh, they tried it. They did on wine. They did on lobsters. They did on a whole lot of stuff. Why not iron ore? Because they know they need it. And if we don't sell it to them, they'll buy it for someone else. We'll sell it to that other person's previous customers. It's a global commodity, so I'm not worried about that in the slightest, personally. Uh, yeah, your your best case. Like, so here's the thing: if it goes badly. You've identified why it will go badly. The challenge for any of us is to look at that and say, those that's the downside risk. How likely, how significant, how material are those to happen? And I can't give you a good answer because no one knows. My best guess is those risks are real but unlikely to be meaningfully value destructive for Fortescue. But I could be entirely wrong. Mm. Rev? Yeah, I think it's, <clears throat> it's a great company. Um, they'll be around for a while. Uh, I was just, while you're talking, I was just looking at the forecasts that are out there. So I think there's sort of a period of sort of super normal profits at the moment, but things are things are likely to drop as, as extra supply comes on. There's all these macro factors. It just, I really, I'm very good, if I can say that about myself, in knowing, in recognizing or admitting what I don't know. And I just don't know. <laughs> and I don't, I don't know is as good as, is, is too hard basket and, and pass. Yeah, I, yeah. I, if you look at the stocks that I'm holding, without exception, they're almost all companies that are in industries 
that are growing very fast. There's just a very mm-hmm. strong wind in the back. So it's kind of like, even if you don't win, if you're just sort of like standing still on a market share basis, you're still likely to, to do pretty well. Um, there's a structural transition within the industry that's at play. There's huge addressable markets. Yeah, there's a lot of other players out there, but everyone's going to make money for the next 10 years as the world transitions to this new thing. Um, when you have industries like iron ore, it's kind of, one, it's a commodity game. So even when you do have periods of excess demand, it's usually got a supply side response. There's 15 million different macro factors that can change very quickly and rapidly. Uh, you know, it's just, it's just you've got to... They, they are wonderful operations when things go your way and they things can but things can turn very quickly and it's just exactly. very hard it's very hard so I, I i go i tend to go to the areas where i feel as though by the way it's not as if nothing can go wrong with where i'm investing like absolutely they can and do quite often go 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 spectacularly wrong but i'm trying to make you're, you're always with, with investing you're always making guesses about the future and i just want to i just want to be able to make easier guesses i suppose and, and the guesses that I need, I, I could use the word forecast, but let's be honest. Um, the, the guesses <laughs> that I need to make with, with Fortescue, there's more guesses and they're harder guesses. So that's not, that, then people will, will sometimes I, uh, people will say, you know, after the fact, oh, but you said that you didn't like this. No, no, I, I didn't. Mm-hmm. Or, or you think it's bad. No, I don't. I just don't know. And there's, there's an important yep. difference yep. there. Absolutely. And, and I just, I just don't know. And there's, and frankly, I don't know, three quarters of the ASX fall into that bucket for me. <laughs> I think it's a really good point because as you say, Ben, ben and his mate are having a chat and if they really feel like they know for sure, then they should absolutely make those trades. If they're not sure, there's no harm in saying, I see this, these pros, I see these cons. I don't know the answer. Mm. Like, cool. Walk away. Move on. Yep. Um, I will say I bought mine in, was it October last year? Something like that. Um, and so, you know, I, the, the, the circumstances will change with the iron ore price. So the other thing is, the other thing I would say is I own the shares, but, uh, you know, I, I may sell at some point depending on the prices, but also the, the iron ore price itself has been all over the place. And so buying at the prevailing prices is a very different story. It's not something where you say, well, I bought it five years ago, therefore it's still a good investment today. Um, unlike most other businesses that don't have that cyclical element to their pricing and their, and their mm. profitability. See, there's the, there's the exception, right? So I think that that's what would draw me in. Like I was just looking at the chart there. For October last year, shares are at 14 bucks. So they're up 35% yeah. since then. So yeah. the, and I, I know because we, we spoke about it at the time, your argument was everything that I just said, I think you agreed with, but it was sort of like, gosh, there's such a margin of safety here. They don't have to do much right. You know, uh, I'm not dependent on everything lining up for me to do well here. It's yeah. just, yeah. so that's, that's the, that, but that's a different story. Like now, now we're 35% higher and now that, yep. that, that situation is, is different. So that's 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 the time where I would sort of break my thinking on that kind of stuff where it's just like oh my gosh it's just it's just such mm-hmm. such so cheap that that I can account I, I can be much more comfortable with that uncertainty because the margin of the margin of safety is is so phenomenally wide. I like it. Let's uh, let's finish off with a story. We got an email who from someone who doesn't want to be named, so I won't. Hi Scott and Ram. I don't have any questions. You usually answer them all for me. Instead, I have a story that I think might be interesting and valuable to at least one listener. I'm 21 years old, as I usually say, bastard. Uh, I wish I had the, the, uh, those 20 plus years uh, ahead of me, but I don't. And I've been listening for the last year or so to the podcast, but I disregarded some of the advice you have given me. I've had to climb down from my high horse quite a lot in the last few months. I started investing about a year and a half ago, and my portfolio went up by about 26% at its highest point in less than a year. I thought I was the king as our correspondent. With my newfound confidence, I ended up taking a personal loan from my parents who are very business-minded. I took out about $10,000 at 6% interest rate, which was what I could not get from the banks at the time, but they thought they could get a better rate, so it was a good deal for all. At this point, this amount of money was about half my entire portfolio. I thought I'd easily make up for the payments with the gains I would make in the market. Oh boy, how I was wrong. I learned that I had paid far too much for some of the businesses that I invested in and with money that I would have to pay back regardless of what happened to them. After a couple of hiccups with a few of those businesses and a war and inflation, my portfolio dropped in value by more than 50%. At this point, it wouldn't be uncommon for someone in my shoes to give up and say, the share market is a scam. But instead, foolishly or otherwise, I held onto the shares that I still had conviction in and still hold most of them now. I did my research and I'm still confident in the long-term stories, so I hold. More recently, because of staying in the market, 
I was able to recover most of my losses and learn valuable lessons in the process. Three mistakes I've learned the hard way and for good. One, don't overpay for businesses, no matter what the price chart has done in the past. Two, use debt wisely and in small proportion, if at all. Three, start with ETFs and continue to contribute to those alongside individual companies. I guess I want to just say thank you to you guys for keeping me sane at times and teaching me along my journey. I've learned to look less at the change in value and more at the total value. Without investing, I would not have been able to save the money that I kept adding into the market so far, I would most likely have spent it. Because of you guys, I've now changed my approach to investing for the better. I've started reading more books on investing, making more mature decisions about my money, and I'm excited for the future. Full on. Pretty good one. That's awesome. I think I think um, we're all going to learn mistakes. Look, you can learn mistakes by reading about the mistakes other people have made, um, but they're never as um, they don't stick as much as when you learn them yourself. You know, it's like you you can play online poker with funny money all day long, and then you right. sit at a table with with real money, and you're going to play completely differently, right? You just you just are, right? So I think I think it's wonderful. I think a don't beat yourself up because everyone goes through that journey. I certainly did. I don't know anyone who who hasn't. I think it's really good to have that experience early on because you've got a whole life ahead of you, and like you, when you are an older man, you will look back. And you'll, you, you know, they'll be relatively small sums of money. So it's better to make those those big those big mistakes on, on relatively small amounts of money. And importantly, it's actually to recognise that you that you made a mistake and learnt the lesson. That's the that's the that is the key here because the difference between I think a successful investor and and an unsuccessful investor is that there is just unfortunately people out there that just have the same opportunity for a lesson presented to them again and again and again and again <laughs> and they just make the same mistake they make this i see it a lot with you know people who think they can trade their way to to easy fortunes and continually have have the the market you know push their face in the mud and they just get back up and think that they can do it this time oh this time now i can do it now i can do it <laughs> you know it's like you know i don't like to learn the lesson dude learn the lesson and and so to 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 have to have gone through that journey, to have recognised the lesson, to ha- and and the, the, the three those three lessons, I think, are just a, a great lessons. They're good, um, aren't they? You know, uh, and it, it's just fantastic. The, the, we've said it before. The real success, I mean, the real the real key to success above anything else in this game is perseverance. And we know what it's like in this industry. The churn is 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 legion. You know, it just you be, you be every it's usually. Usually, guys. Oh, I'm going to be Warren Buffett. Woo! I'm brilliant. Oh, this sucks. <laughs> Scam. And they go. So, like, just the churn is. You know, everyone that tries their hand at it. Very few people stick at it. Yeah. But it's the people who stick at it that you sort of check back in on. You know, 10, 20 years later, it's like, my God, they're crushing it, right? Because they just they're there for the good times. They're there for the bad times. They 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 make the mistakes that all of us make, but then learn from those mistakes, and then they they just they just build up experience. They build up tolerance. They build up all of those things. And that is the secret. That is the secret. This this unnamed listener uh, at twenty one saying this, I have every confidence that that uh, if we were to check back when they were our age, that they'd be crushing it. <laughs> they just they just will be, guaranteed. It's you know what I thought was really so. Yeah, I completely agree with everything you said, mate. And the, and the lessons are great, and the, the the emails great. What I really liked, and, and something I don't really thought about enough with investing, but it's really true, is as he says. Without investing, I would not have been able to save the money that I kept adding into the market so far. I would most likely have spent it. Mm. And I just thought that was interesting because it's it's so obviously true. And it's there's something to the discipline of... And it could have been saving a total deposit on the bank. It doesn't have to be investing necessarily. In this case, it was for this listener, which is great. Mm. Um, but I just I just thought there was there's something really important in that element as well of, you know, the... A ten percent return on a thousand dollars, or a eight percent return on ten thousand dollars. <laughs> you know, you, I, I'd rather take the, the higher return. But if you know, if you can, if you can add that capital regularly to the market, if that if that process alone is enough to give you the discipline to invest or save rather than spend that money, you'll be far ahead, further, so much further ahead just because of the sheer dollar value you actually end up putting aside. And that's not, you know, you and I try and maximize our returns, and we spend a lot of time telling our listeners about ways to think about investing to try and give them the best possible returns. But there's something just to a starting young, and b adding regular and the discipline of doing that, which is 
you know, far more important than the actual returns themselves, right? Because if you can just lock in that saving regularly that you might not have otherwise done, that is the, that is as much the ticket as anything. Because yep. whether you whether you beat the market, match the market, or even lose to the market by a bit, adding regularly large enough amounts of money that's that's almost the secret right the rest mm-hmm. is the rest is cream um i mean you know getting nothing in your money versus you know eight or ten percent is very very different so i'm not saying it's it's enough but there's just something to that alone of just if you can create that that habit for yourself particularly at 21 bloody hell um it's just in a really really great place i wish wish i would wish i was smarter as that when i was 21 <sighs> can i tell you my you, you know, so you know what my issue is with that i was that smart i wasn't that disciplined uh, that's what that's what annoys me. Like I said before, <laughs> I was a fail I, I had, on both, both eight, fronts. <laughs> mate, I had a year eight maths teacher who told us the secret of being a millionaire by retirement. You had it was some stupid amount of money you had to invest, tiny amount of money between eighteen and thirty, right? Mm. It was like a thousand dollars a year for whatever the numbers were. I can't remember now. I was like that's that's all I got to do. Yeah, that's all I got to do. Mm-hmm. And then just the years tick past because I just don't. And then it's like you can't get it back. Mm. That 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 missed opportunity of compounding is just it's brutal, and it's one of the one of the great one of the great uh, tricks that life plays on us is by the time you care enough to do take this seriously, you've missed the opportunity, and the time when it can be used to the most degree, like our listener who's now twenty one, mm. if if his mates and, and you know peers do the same thing, but most of them will go, oh, I'll get around to it, and then at thirty five they'll start. Mm. That's fourteen years. That's you know average market return of ten percent. That's two doubles. Mm-hmm. You know, retire at a million, you could have retired at four million. Mm-hmm. It just it, it drives me a little bit. There's nothing you do about it. It's just, it's life, but it sucks. And it's just one of those, some, someone up there is having to laugh at us, you know. Guess what, guys? I'm going to give you the opportunity to do this, but I'm not going to give you the fortitude. And by the time you have the fortitude, you won't have the opportunity. Sucked in. It's like, well, it's not not, not that cool. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. It's easy. Get, get, get it rich slow. It's the easiest thing in the yes. world. Yes. <laughs> On really, paper. Like, it genuinely know. is. Yeah. No, it's like, genuinely yeah, is. but. But there's a there's someone over there saying I can do it really easily and much yeah. quicker. I'm gonna go. All with you gotta do is yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Get rich slow. Oh, yeah. That's a good note to finish on, I think, mate. What do you reckon? Yep, yep. Good episode. Will you join me next Friday? Yes, I'll be here. Beauty. Look forward to it. Until then, make sure you do follow us on all of our socials. Hey, by the way, I haven't asked this for a while. If you could jump on, particularly if you're an Apple podcast user, if you jump onto your podcast machine and leave us a review, we'd love that. If you leave us five stars, that'd be even better. Um, Apple uses these algorithms as it does to pop things up to the uh, the top of the pops. And so the more people who engage, the more people who subscribe and who give us reviews, the better for everybody. It also helps listeners who might see this in called Motley for Money and think, what the hell is that? Um, hopefully, find it, understand it, and realize that other people love it and they might too. So if you're enjoying it, if you're not, I figure you're not listening now, so that's okay. If you're still here, I figure we're doing something of value. And if you could help other people find it, that'd be super, super appreciated. Uh, Five stars would be awesome if you wouldn't mind it. I don't love asking for it, but that's the way of the world these days and the way the systems work. So if you could help us out, that would be awesome. And then we'll be back next Friday with another dose of foolish goodness. Until then, full on. Nice one, see ya. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. The Motley Fool operates under Financial Services Licence 400691.